Hi, my name is Kyle Bomstead and I'm a member here with Restored Church. Uh, if you're new, we want to say welcome and thank you for tuning in. Uh, we believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we would love the opportunity to be able to connect with you. Uh, if you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website at restoredtemecula.church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. Uh, with all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to our Sunday gathering. I want to welcome you. If you're new, if you're a visitor, I would love to meet you. My name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing in our series, which is called The Summer and the Psalms. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you probably, um, you probably know this already, but if you're new, we were going through the Gospel of Matthew in a series called The King and His Kingdom. So basically for the summer, we're putting a pause on that and actually starting to go through a bunch of different psalms. Uh, if you missed it last week, highly want to encourage you to go back and check out Grant's message. Grant Clark came up from uh, San Diego, from Uptown, one of our sister churches, and preached uh, the darkest psalm in the entire Bible. And uh, you, we could have literally called that message, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Uh, but it was actually incredibly encouraging. So I just want to, it's basically what I'm trying to say is we're going to paint a broad, the psalms cover a wide spectrum of emotions, and we're gonna, we want to cover them all. There's a dark night of the soul. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at a psalm with a just slightly different note than last week, but I think it will be no less encouraging to you uh, as, it, as it has been to me this week. So let's go ahead and pray for our time this morning. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing in this church community. I want to thank you that you are a God who desires to be known. You desire to reveal yourself to people. So I pray that uh, for each of us, wherever we're at, whether we've been walking with you for, for years, for a long time, or if we're new to church, or if we've never even heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I just pray that your welcome and your, your love would rest on each person today. I pray that you would reveal more and more of who you are in a way that would help us to see you the way that you really are, loving, gracious, kind, merciful, good, a God of hope and encouragement. Yeah, we love you, uh, we thank you, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen. October 30th, 1974, in Kinshasa, in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, basically in Central Africa, the eyes of the world descended. One billion people, one out of every four people in the, on earth at the time, in 1974, tuned in for what ended up becoming arguably the greatest sporting event of the last 100 years. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Rumble in the Jungle. Who said it? Yeah, somebody said it. Whatever. Chris, very good. Rumble in the Jungle. George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali. Uh, at the time, uh, Muhammad Ali was, was 32 years old. If you don't know who Muhammad Ali is, uh, he was a charismatic, confident, controversial figure. He was the heavyweight champion of the world at one point, and then he was out of boxing for three and a half years, uh, basically during his prime. And what happened is, this was the uh, 1960s, 70s, he took an anti-war stance uh, with respect to the war in Vietnam, and he was stripped of his title. He was out of boxing for three and a half years. So now he's 32 years old, he's taken his lumps, He's gotten knocked down, metaphorically speaking, in life, and he is facing an uphill battle. If you're, in, if you're younger, you might not know this, but when you get into your 30s, things don't work the same way that they did when you're in your 20s. And so now imagine like you're an athlete at the highest caliber, and you're 32, you've been out of it for a little while, and now you're facing a guy who's 25 years old, George Foreman. And he was undefeated. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He had never been knocked down. He was an Olympic gold medalist, and he was tearing through his opponents in a way that had rarely, if ever, been seen in the professional uh, heavyweight ranks. His calling card was his power. He was six foot three, 220 pounds. Big boy, not an ounce of fat on him. He was just a machine, a fighting machine. 
And so I'm actually going to show you what his training was like, because I think it's fun. Uh, I have the video queued up. But before I do, first you're going to see George Foreman training. And then you're going to see, you're going to hear commentary from a couple of journalists who were kind of on the beat at the time. And then you're going to see Muhammad Ali training. So video number one, Marshall, cue it up. Let's roll the tape. Incredible. I'd seen him fight before. I saw him destroy uh, Fraser, And I'd never seen destruction like that. And the thing that I've always remembered was that the beaten fighter, even a man as powerful and big as Fraser, and you think, and he was very much favored to win that, suddenly becomes about the size of a pygmy. <laughs> very small person. They just diminish in size. And uh, Foreman suddenly became this gigantic figure. And he had a trainer, uh, Dick Sadler. Yeah. It hurts to watch it. Sadler would hang on to the heavy bag, and Foreman would hit this, this bag. Sadler would just literally be picked off his feet. Foreman hitting the heavy bag is one of the uh, more prodigious sights I've had in my life. It seems to me that of all the people I've seen hitting heavy bags, including Sonny Liston, no one ever hit it the way Foreman did. At the end of 15 minutes of pounding the heavy bag, there'd be a hole in the heavy bag. Not a hole, but a huge dent the size of half a small watermelon in that tremendous heavy bag. And Foreman used to use the biggest heavy bag around. What would be interesting is Ollie, who would train after Foreman, would often pass by this large hall where the training took place, and he never looked at Foreman hitting the heavy bag. He just walked right by as if Foreman did not, not exist. And it was significant because if you were going to fight the man, you did not want to see him hitting that heavy bag. I'm a speed I'm a brain fighter. I'm scientific. I'm artistic. I plan my strategy. He's a bull. I'm not a dog. He's scared to death. He's scared to death. Foreman. And he just goes on and on. Muhammad Ali. I've seen him fight before. I the gift him. of gab. He had it. Really remarkable. Uh, here's the thing. Muhammad Ali's, you know, he, which by the way, that's impressive. If, if you haven't jumped rope in a while, it's not that easy. And then if you're like coming up with like rhymes and <laughs> it's pretty impressive stuff. Uh, so he still got it at 32. But he wasn't the man he was in his 20s. But here's the thing. He's talking about like, he's scared to death. He's scared to death. The only people who were scared to death were Ali's trainers, Muhammad Ali's trainers. Why? Because George Foreman was the man. And if you want to be the man, you've got to beat the man. Woo! <laughs> Here's the problem. Nobody beat that man. Nobody. George Foreman's previous two fights, one, George Foreman versus Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier, if you don't know who he is, one of the greatest heavyweight fighters of all time. He's in the Boxing Hall of Fame. He gets into the square, he gets into the ring. I was going to call it a squared circle. I think that's wrestling. He got into the ring with George Foreman, and he lasted two rounds. He got knocked down six times. Six times. If you're a fan of sports, you've probably heard this, this famous clip. That it's like, down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Down goes Frazier. Great. Six of you. Um, it's really famous. You know who knocked Frazier down? Foreman. George Foreman. The other fight was a fight against Ken Norton. Ken Norton is another one of the greats of all time. He's another Hall of Famer. He faces George Foreman. He lasts how many rounds? Two. And the, the referee was just like, I don't want this guy to die in the ring, basically. Called it. So who's really afraid in Zaire? It's Ali's corner. It's not George Foreman. He's not scared at all. Before the fight, one of the journalists retells the story of what it's like in Muhammad Ali's dressing room right before this fight. Believe it or not, it was quiet. The trainers, the entourage, it was subdued, it was muted, it was somber. And Ali comes in, he's like, what's wrong with you? It's fear. Fear is what's wrong with them. Fear of what George Foreman might do to them, might do to him. As a journalist is retelling the story, the journalist is like, well, Look, they're scared that he's going to lose because Muhammad Ali is too proud to give up. So they're concerned that he's going to get beat to death, effectively. That Foreman might actually kill him. So that's what it's like. And then first round, ding, ding, ding. 
uh, Ali comes out with this unexpected strategy. He starts throwing right-hand leads. Does anybody know what a right-hand lead is? Any boxing fans in the room? Not a single one. One. Okay, great. So normally, you don't do that because it's like it takes, it's more distance to actually punch your opponent, and it leaves you open and exposed. So nobody, when George Foreman is doing his training, is giving him right-hand leads. So Ali's trying to strategize, trying to come up with something different, trying to surprise him, and he lands several times. The problem was they didn't do anything. They just annoyed George Foreman, which is something you don't want to do. So round two, ding, ding, ding. Foreman comes out swinging, and he sends Ali to the ropes. And as you can imagine, you saw what he did the punching bag. That's what he was starting to do to Muhammad Ali. And as a journalist is retelling the story, he calls it a nightmare. George Foreman, what he would do is he would cut off the ring. That was his strategy. And essentially what that means is that he would corner his opponents up against the ropes or literally in a corner. He was cutting off the ring so that there would be no escape from him, from this, from these haymakers. And so a younger, stronger opponent has Muhammad Ali on the ropes. As I was thinking about this week, uh, this message, my life, what's happening in the life of our community, this felt like a fitting picture. I think every disciple, every follower of Jesus will find him or herself on the ropes at some point in time. As I was thinking about my own life, I came up with very quickly four different times, four different examples of ways I've felt on the ropes as a disciple. As I've sought to follow Jesus, I've sought to be faithful to him in this world and do what uh, God has called me to do. I have been on the ropes uh, financially. Maybe you've heard this before. How will we pay the bills? How will we pay the house? How will we afford living in the time and the place that God has called us to, that we believe he's leading us into? I've been on the ropes financially. I've been on the ropes relationally as I've thought more about this. There were trusted, people, trusted close people that I relied on that I ended up asking the question, like, how did I end up here? How did we end up so far apart? I thought I knew you. I thought we were a team. I thought we were in this together. I've been on the ropes relationally, but on the ropes emotionally. There's been times when I've felt so low, so discouraged, so kind of depressed and overwhelmed in life that I felt like a boat. If you've ever seen a boat uh, after a storm rolls through, and, uh, there's boats sometimes that get, they go adrift, and then they start taking like this beating, right? You start seeing the waves, the huge storm waves. I've felt like that at times. Not only that, financially, relationally, emotionally, there's just been times in my career, I feel like I've been on the ropes in terms of my career, where I'm trying to make things happen, but nothing is happening. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. It feels like there's no way out. It feels like there's no escape. It feels like I'm in the ring, and the ring has been cut off, and I am on the ropes. And that's happened many times as a disciple. And I know a lot of you guys pretty well, and I know that I'm not alone. I think in this room, we've got people who have been on the ropes against addiction, against depression, been on the ropes with, with relational turmoil, job losses, financial pressures. Sometimes it's just feeling misunderstood by people, people assuming the worst about you, being criticized, being judged, being treated in ways that are dehumanizing, being betrayed, abandoned, feeling sometimes worthless or like life is meaningless and there's no end in sight. We've all been on the ropes at one point or another. Maybe for you it's been more in the past, where you felt that way. Maybe, maybe you're on the ropes today. Maybe you feel like you're facing something today that is bigger and stronger than you and there's no way out. Maybe you're in a good spot right now, which by the way, if that's you, praise God. Like I, I am happy. You're probably journeying with people who are on the ropes or who will be on the ropes soon. And for all of us, we will be on the ropes at one point or another. It's just a matter of time. So everyone has been, is, or will be against the ropes one day. Sometimes we just put our head down and just work harder. That's our strategy that we take. Sometimes we try to convince ourselves and others that we're fine. Everything is fine. How many times have we heard that? I'm fine. We're fine. Everything is fine. In really difficult moments, it is tempting. It is enticing. Sometimes it is seductive to become bitter and cynical, blaming God and other people. And ultimately, beginning to wander. Beginning to be like that boat that's just kind of unmoored. Unmoored? Is that a word? Yes, thank you. One of you know that. You're adrift, and you're getting battered. That can happen. That can happen in our faith. We can wander from Jesus. But if we pay attention to what's happening in those moments, and maybe you have, and maybe you haven't, deep down, 
there's a remarkable consistency that, that we all face this. We ask these questions, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? Sometimes we have the awareness to actually articulate that. And there's, time, there's room and space for that. The Psalms make it really clear. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Totally appropriate for a disciple to go through something like that. Other times we ask, God, don't you see? Don't you care? So today we're going to look at a, a psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 33. And it's actually a remarkable psalm that I think puts all of our struggles every time that we're on the ropes into a new perspective so that we can actually increase our capacity for the most unexpected emotion of all in the midst of our struggles. Joy. So turn with me over to Psalm 33. If you have your Bible, Psalm 33 will start with verse 1. If you do not have your Bible, that is okay. We are going to have the verses up on the screen. There they are. So here we go. Psalm 33, verse number one. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. L-Y-R-E, with the lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. So instead of losing hope, instead of giving up, instead of looking for a miracle cure, instead of putting our hope in a career, money, power, influence stuff, people, being strong, being liked, having a plan, accumulating knowledge, distracting ourselves from pain, entertaining ourselves, retail therapy, or turning anywhere else, the Lord calls on his people to do something unexpected. Rejoice with your life and with your larynx, with your virtue and your voice box with your harmony, and with your harmonies. Steak and sizzle. Okay, right with God and each other and roaring with praise. That's the reality of the Christian life. The followers of Yahweh here in Psalm 33, the Christian now. Sing him a song and do it skillfully. Why? Why is a good question. Why is a good question to ask? Verse four. Here's the why. For the, work of the, the word of the Lord is right. All his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all of the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap and he puts the depths in the storehouses. We'll unpack that more a little bit later. Verse eight, let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. Or when the world feels like chaos, which doesn't it just feel like more chaotic every day? The Lord thwarts the plans of the people. He frustrates the counsel of the nations. He brings them to nothing. The counsel, though, of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. He's over all the noise. Verse 12. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. And in context here, that nation is not America, it's Israel. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. So it goes from specific Israel to everyone. All the commentators note, there's an all, 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 all. The Lord's eyes are on everyone. He gazes on the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers their works. In other words, God sees what you're going through and he cares. You're not on your own figuring stuff out. You are not, you're not on your own. One of the commentators I was reading said something that I thought was mind-boggling. He said, over against people, which is all of us, every single person, we have some biases. We have some assumptions that we carry about people, right? If we're honest, it's true. It, he said, he's not biased against you, he being God. He's not biased. He's not ignorant of what you're going through, and he's not unsure of the facts. He sees your suffering. He sees. There's a lot of sight, 
language in here, like the eyes of the Lord. He sees your suffering and he hears your cry, you righteous ones. Cares. Verse number 16. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him. Those who, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. He cares, he sees, and he's doing something about it. So let's wrap up this psalm. Verse 20. We wait for the Lord. Here's our part. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. What do you guys think? A little different than uh, Hello Darkness, my old friend, huh? No less true. So we're going to look at, uh, today we're going to answer three kind of God questions about, yeah, how he helps us in the midst of our chaos. So here's the three questions that we're going to look at today. Here they are. What is God like in the midst of the chaos? What is he like? What is he up to? And what does he want from us? What is he like? What is he up to? What does he want from us? Pretty simple questions, but they're really important and profound. So what is God like? What is God like? Number one. What is God like? So verses uh, four to seven, I'm going to read them real quick. For the word of the Lord is right. All of his work is trustworthy. He loves justice and righteousness. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the sea into a heap. And this is what we're going to focus in on. He gathers the sea into a heap. He puts the depths in storehouses. That probably means nothing to you, like it meant nothing to me when I first read it. Here's the thing, though. The waters, is a, that's a really important bit of imagery in the Bible. Uh, any Bible project fans in the house? Yeah, good. Okay. One day, all the hands will go up, and then we'll know that Jesus is going to come soon. Uh, the Bible project is amazing. If you need a resource, which if you're a disciple, the answer to this is yes. It's a stupid question. You need a resource to help you with the Bible, right? And the Bible Project, what they do is they create animated videos that are really easy, accessible, understandable on every book of the Bible and, and pretty much every theme that you can imagine. And they're constantly producing new content. They also have this little secret gem of a podcast, if you've never heard it, where they like, it's basically like the DVD extras. There was, once there was a thing called DVDs that we used to put into a, a machine and that it would play essentially like streams things, but it was really interesting. And they would have like all these extras, right? The Bible Project podcast is the DVD extras of the Bible. I'm going to quote the Bible Project here. Chaotic water, check this out. You guys don't have this in the back. I got this right here in my notes. You're doing a great job, Marshall. Thank you. I gave him like 50 different slides to, and videos. Doing great. Chaotic water is the first image given in the Bible. The first image in the Bible. What is it? Yeah, great. It meant, it's meant to convey a state of uncreation, a state that is uninhabitable and unwelcoming of life. So that's what God starts with. That's what he has to work with. In contrast, the dark, chaotic waters present at the beginning of Genesis which an ancient person, if you want to think the way that people read the Bible think, an ancient person would have thought danger. That's what, what chaotic waters represents. By the end of the creation story, what are those waters? A river. River of life. What's the point? In the creation story, we see that God brings order out of chaos. He brings he stands over the chaos, controls it, and shapes it into something beautiful. This is creation, which, by the way, says a lot about the world. It says a lot about us. This is, this is stuff that can shape your identity if you allow it to and help you see life differently. He, in his goodness, embraces everybody, embraces all people. It's Derek Kidner, who wrote a, an excellent commentary on the Psalms, said that. Uh, 
two or three weeks ago, my wife Heather and I went to Mexico, uh, Los Cabos. Anybody been there before? A few of you? Okay, cool. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's like a desert by the sea. Uh, so it's got like San Diego vibes, I guess. But, uh, but it's like more intense. It's like a phoenix by the sea or something. It's just like there's cactus, you know, um, over, it would have an ocean view. It's pretty weird. But, um, but I really enjoyed it. It's our 10-year wedding anniversary this month. We're celebrating all month, every day. Yep, there it is. Church coming through. Um, <laughs> and uh, they told us, when you, when you fly into Cabo, you, you actually meet this uh, a bunch of people that are just basically there to help you set up your vacation. So they don't work necessarily for the hotel that you're a part of. I think they probably work for the Mexican government on the tourism side. And, uh, and I think I realized that they were trying to get us to like, invest in Dreams, which is like the Mexican-owned uh, resort, Timeshare. So, I, so I, once I realized that, I was like, okay, I'm taking everything they're saying with a grain of salt. But they told us about our hotel. They were like, yeah, you can't swim there. It's like the rip current or whatever are too strong. And I was like, okay, sure. And we get there. You definitely can't swim there. Uh, it, it was wild. I found myself saying out loud multiple times, oh my gosh, the sea is wild. The sea is crazy. The sea is, is chaotic. Uh, has anybody seen this down in, yes, yeah, a few of you guys. What it felt like to me, now granted, I, um, I was born on an island in Puerto Rico and what, I, I grew up uh, going to this beach that I thought was what beaches were supposed to be like. It was like flat the, the whole time. It's just kind of like the water just kind of laps up to the shore. It's hilariously mild and calm. That's what I grew up with. That was my mental conception of beach. So then when I see this down in Mexico, I'm like, oh my gosh, is there a storm? Is there a hurricane that I didn't see on the forecast coming in? Are we going to get swept away, essentially? It got so bad during my trip that I actually started dreaming about it. And so I had this dream where... I was in the room that I was actually sleeping in. You guys ever have those dreams where you're like, you're in your bed or whatever, and it's like, oh, this is very real. I had this dream that our, our room, which actually overlooked the pool, and it actually, you could see the ocean from our room as well, that it was all dark, dark and like kind of blacked out, but there was water that you can feel like coming up against the glass. So it was like, the waves were just coming hard and... Basically, I was afraid of, di- it was dangerous and I was afraid of dying. And that gives you like a good sense of what the ancient mind thought of, this, of the sea. It was a place of danger and death. But here in this psalm, it's like God is saying, I'm over all of that. I'm over it all. I'm keeping it at bay. It's actually pretty easy for me to do that. Uh, I'm going to read real quick. Derek Kidner in his commentary said that the mastery that God has over this world is effortless. So check this out. This is from, uh, by the way, if you're looking for a resource for the summer, uh, like an easy book to follow along with, if you're reading the Psalms on your own, or if you want to follow along, John Goldengay, who is a professor over at uh, Fuller Theological Sem- Seminary in Pasadena, wrote this. Uh, it's called Psalms for Everyone. There's a part one and two. Fantastic stuff. Really good resource for the summer. And uh, you guys don't have this in the back, so I'm just going to read this real quick. So check this out. God keeps the seas under control. Uh, More often than not, if we take note of the patterns of the behavior of the seas, they are not a danger to us. We are more a danger to ourselves, assuming we will get away with something we should know is dangerous. Swimming in dangerous waters or whatever. The psalm declares that God's act of creation resembled the act of an engineer who constructs a dam to contain waters. You've ever seen that? I I think we've probably all seen dams before. It's like that. Or, perhaps more likely, it resembled the humbler act of a shepherd who constructs a little dam with a few stones and some sand to contain the waters of a stream so that they will be still waters that don't frighten the sheep. Psalm 23. You see in this? This is what God is being likened to for our benefit. Or it resembled the act of a farmer who constructs a similar dam to hold in some of the winter rains so that they're available for the irrigation of crops during the summer drought. The mighty act of creation that God, the mighty act of creation that keeps the waters in their place is no more trouble for God than those bits of engineering. One of the commentators was actually like, he used the analogy of a water bottle. 
like an ancient water bottle. He was like, it's him containing the seas is as easy as you and I filling up a water bottle. That's what God is like. Danger and death in the Bible are described as chaotic waters, but peace and security are a river of life. And that's what God created in the garden. So, number one, what is God like? God is reliable. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. God is reliable. A theological word for you is reliable. Deep, profound. But it is. It's simple language, but it is. Uh, I got a picture in the back, Marshall, of, of like a rock formation. That one right there. Okay, what do you guys see? A lion. You got it quick. You guys see the lion? Can you see the, um, the mane and then the nose, the mouth, and then the eyes? Can you all see that? That's it. I thought that was cool. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. There's a point to this. We were walking around. This is our last day in Mexico. And um, look at those waves. Taller than I was. Um, and that was just a normal day. That was just what was happening all the time. It was weird. So we were walking, and Heather and I had walked the beach regularly during this trip, right? And uh, one day, this, this kind of, um, this guy who, I'm assuming he's an American, he was speaking English down there, he pulls us aside as we're walking down the beach, and he's like, you guys got to look at this. Check that out. And we're like, cool, we've been here every day. What are you talking about? He's like, it's a lion. And then we looked at it, I was like, oh, snap, it is a lion. He's not kidding. And I thought this was like a perfect picture. So you have these wild waves, this chaotic ocean, this danger. And there it is, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is another name for Jesus, just watching. And the water really didn't go past the lion, just like just a couple feet. If I zoomed out, you would see it. It's just a beach. So he stands watching over the waters, protecting, ruling. The wind and the waves obey him. So these words that we just read, here's one final quote. They're a reflection on Genesis 1. So if you ever wonder what Genesis 1 is all about, interestingly, the Bible doesn't get into like scientific debates about creation. It doesn't get into that. But it does tell us about this that God ordered the world by his breath. The order and stability we experience, those waters never came up to my room. I didn't swim in them, though. Not stupid. (laughs) The order and stability we experience tells a story about the loyal love of God. The chesed, that's the the Hebrew word, which um, I know two Hebrew words, chesed is one of them. The loyal love of God. Genesis 1 isn't just about a moment where creation first happened. It's about the ongoing stability that God provides to all creation. God is reliable. Okay, number two, what is he up to? What is he up to? Uh, Verses 8 to 11 say, Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. I want to ask you a question. What is the most important moment in Israel's history? What is the defining moment in the history of God's people? Anybody? I can't hear. Okay, I can't hear anything. I just hear like various whispers, so I'm just going to tell you what the answer is. The answer is when God rescues his people out of Egypt. There you go. I don't know who got that, but if you got it, good good on you, Bible trivia. If you didn't, the Bible Project is a podcast that you can listen to. It's free on the Android and Apple. Okay, so that's the most important moment in the history of Israel. Why? God rescues his people out of Egypt. What's happening in Egypt? The people of God are in... Egypt for hundreds of years, and they are suffering. They're in bondage, and in the middle of that suffering, can you imagine what that must have felt like? Take a moment just to think about it. You're in bondage, you're in slavery. What does that feel like? For me, it was like, well, there's either no plan, God, you have no plan, or there's a plan, and guess what? It's failing. 
That's what it would feel like around year two. How about year 230 or year 345 or whatever? Yeah, that's rough. But there was a promise and there was a plan. It just wasn't according to the human timeline that we would have wanted. Genesis 15, 13, you guys don't have this in the back. God actually predicted the suffering that his people would go through and he promised their risk, their rescue. Verse uh, Genesis 15, 13, the Lord said to Abram, Abram was this guy, pretty random dude, who God made all these incredible outlandish promises. The problem with God isn't that he makes promises that are too small, it's that they're too big, right? So he makes these promises, Abraham, you're going to have a a child, and you're going to have children, and the hope of the world is going to be tied up in your family. Go. (laughs) And so, yeah, Abraham had a hard time with that one, as probably you and I would too. But he said, know this for certain, this is the Lord to Abraham, your offspring, your people will be resident aliens for about 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, a.k.a. Egypt. So this is before it happens, God is telling him. And will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions, which is exactly what happened. They left Egypt with a lot of stuff. God hooked them up. So here's the, here's the big idea. The Lord frustrates the purposes and plans of the nations. Pharaoh could be like a picture of the nations, right? This person who doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't recognize him, doesn't bow the knee to him. Actually, when, when, I think it was when Moses went to Pharaoh, and he was like, let my people go. I think Pharaoh asked him, like, who's the Lord? Who's God? In other words, like, don't know the guy. Well, he would. <laughs> he would find out shortly what God was all about. He doesn't mess around. The Lord frustrates the purposes and plans of the nations, but his own purposes and plans endure. The disruptive and rebellious waters of chaos are portrayed as gathered up, limited, controlled. In the same way, the disruptive and rebellious plans and purposes of the nations are described as frustrated and undone. God puts everybody in their place, is the way that one commentator brilliantly put it. So think about that. When the world is falling apart, when you see people doing ridiculous things, even in God's name, what's going to happen in time? Just give it time. People and their counsel come to nothing or serve God's purposes without them realizing it. Let me say that again. People and their counsel come to nothing if it's up against God, the unrighteous, people that don't rely on him, if they're relying on themselves or whatever, or their horse, their military might or power or whatever. It comes to nothing, or they serve God's purposes without realizing it. Pharaoh being the prime example. I will raise you up to show my power in the world, Pharaoh. Rage and do whatever you want, but I'm going to get you. <laughs> it's crazy. I could go on and on. The, I'll just say this last, last little bit. The most important story in the history of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament... The most important story was when they were rescued out of Egypt. How were they rescued? What did they have to go down into and come out of? Water. Water. The Israelites could be consumed by those waters. At one point, they're like, we're going to die by Pharaoh. We're going to drown. That was what they were facing because they were boxed in. They were up against the ropes. Pharaoh had cut off the ring. And here's what God does. God fights back both of them the waters, and Pharaoh. He turns the chaotic waters on Israel's enemies and chaos destroys itself is the idea behind the story of Pharaoh. The chaos that Pharaoh unleashed consumed him. He brings beauty and order out of chaos and darkness. What is God up to? Number two, he's working a plan. He's working a plan. He's reliable. He's working a plan. It's actually good not to get bent out of shape about what's happening in our world today. I'm going to say that again. It's actually good not to get bent out of shape about what's happening in our world today. A lot of people make a lot of buku bucks on getting you and I riled up in the media. When this is saying, hey, you don't need to do that. And by the way, this is everywhere. This is on right, right or left, doesn't matter. A lot of money to be made for your eyes when in reality God's eyes are on you in the midst of all this chaos. 
He knows. He cares. He's working a plan. Human plans fail. You think about your life, you could probably find one or two plans that didn't work out for you. Certainly happened to me. Human plans fail. You know what's been interesting? I was, uh, one of the things I did during my vacation with, with Heather was read about fascism in Spain. <laughs> Fascinating topic. Actually, the, uh, I jumped into it not thinking it was a book about fascism. It was actually a book about soccer. But uh, the only way to explain Spanish soccer is to talk about fascism. It's more complicated than that. I'm probably giving, painting a negative picture of Spain, which is probably warranted, you know, in the whatever. The point is, there's a point to this. Uh, interestingly, there is this fascist dictator in Spain, Franco, or Franco. And uh, when I went to Spain, I went in 2005, and I f it was a fascinating place, and they would stay up until just the wildest. It they would, people would leave the house at midnight to go out dancing or whatever. We'd had dinner at 10. I'd take a nap at 11, and then we'd go out. I was in college at the time. And it was all a big response to the crackdown, the harsh measures of this fascist dictator who died in 1970-something. Spain, Franco's dead. Pharaoh's dead. Uh, Herod is dead. Do I need to go on? All of these people rage, plot. They come to nothing. They're dead. God's plans don't fail and won't fail. So let's, no need to get bent out of shape about what's happening in our world today. Rumble in the jungle. Ali is up against the ropes. He's being walloped by a stronger opponent. But you know what's interesting about that? That wasn't the first time that Ali had been walloped. During training, the, uh, the historians that, that, you know, that deal with this stuff said that he got dominated in training. Muhammad Ali dominated in training. Why? It was as if Ali wanted to train his body to receive these messages of punishment and absorb them faster than the other fighters could. In other words, he was growing in endurance, resilience, and toughness. He was preparing to outlast his opponent. To outlast the worst onslaught. He was preparing to rope a dope. <laughs> he was working a plan. George Foreman, with all that power, guess what he didn't do? He didn't last long in fights because he didn't have to. <laughs> he knocked out Norton in two rounds and Frazier. Down goes Frazier, two rounds. You don't have to build up a lot of endurance to do that. <laughs> you just wallop, right? Okay, this is going somewhere. Uh, he's working a plan. Okay. God's working a plan. So what does he want from us? What does God want from us? Number three, if you're taking notes, this is the kind of the third and final thing we're going to talk about today. Verses uh, 20 to 22 in Psalm 33 says, We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield, for our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. When we're up against the ropes, he doesn't want us figuring stuff, up, figuring stuff out on our own. We're, we're not alone. He doesn't want us turning to other Sources of rescue, whether it's politicians or money or career or status, property, money, wealth, none of that stuff. He doesn't want us to say, I've got this. Because even the best laid plans don't work out. He wants us to rest and rejoice and request his love. I was listening to uh, the book of Acts, which is just fun for days to go through the book of Acts. I think when you plant a church, it's like, oh yeah, this, this, this. It's like, um, I'm learning more about me and about us and what we're doing and what we're experiencing as I read the book of Acts. It's really cool. One of the stories that's in there, I thought was absolutely fascinating. And we're gonna go through it pretty quickly. It's a really interesting story. Acts 16, verses 16 to 34. I think we've got it queued up here. There you go. Uh, this is a story about Paul and Silas in prison. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul was a missionary. He was taking the good news about Jesus out into the world. And as he did, he faced all kinds of funky situations. There was a lot of fruit and there was a lot of frustration that he dealt with in ministry. 
And this is a fascinating story. Okay, so verse 16, Acts 16, it says, Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Okay, real quick. If this is different to you, yes, this is pretty strange. But the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about there's spiritual power in this world that is not submitted to God, but it can be accurate sometimes in predicting what will happen. It's not an invitation to go see a, um, uh, whatever, to go see a psychic, thank you. It's not an invitation to go see a psychic or whatever, but it is a recognition that there's real power that doesn't submit to God that operates in this world, right? So she predicted the future, and she made, here's the kicker, she was exploited for money. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. Is that true or false? True. She did this for many days, and then guess what? Paul was greatly annoyed. <laughs> Paul was a real person. These Christians were real people, and they got ticked off, annoyed, short, frustrated, all that stuff. But here's the crazy part. You can be annoyed and still operate in incredible spiritual power. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. <laughs> So, did God ordain this? I don't, I mean, we could talk about this all day. Paul just seemed annoyed. <laughs> Good news for this girl. Terrible news for the owners. Paul, you, you, did, you done it now. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace of the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. These guys are causing an uproar. We will not stand for this. They are Jews, and they are promoting customs that are not legal for us. We're, we're law-abiding Roman citizens, and these guys are turning everything over. Uh, they're, they're messing things up to adopt our practice, whatever. The, the crowd joined in the attack against them. So now, all of a sudden, things get real serious. Now crowds are starting to beat on Paul and his ministry partners. The chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. Uh-oh. After they had been severely flogged, so it just went from silly to serious, serious flogging. Uh, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet into stocks. So they're up against the ropes. What do they do? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. I just want you to think about if that had happened to you, what would you be doing around midnight in the prison in like a first century dirty humid, filthy prison. They're singing. They're having a, well, I don't know if they're having a good time, but they're, they're singing songs. And apparently, as these, uh, oh, did, I, did we skip a, oh, no, right there. Prisoners, we listen to them. Let's keep going. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations were shaken. I guess I missed this part, but when these disciples entrusted themselves to God, it had an effect on other people. Because the other people, the other prisoners were just listening. Pretty cool. And all of a sudden, there was an earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everybody's chains came loose. Oh my gosh. Just picture that for a minute. These aren't made up stories. They're not presented that way. You don't have to believe them. I'm not here telling you that you have to believe that this is true. I'm just letting you know that they're not, this is not like a, this isn't like a poem. This is presented as this is what happened. And it actually is not the first time in the book of Acts that God did something like this, opened up the prison and let people out. And then it goes on. The jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing. He drew his sword and was going to kill himself because it would be on him if these prisoners got out. And then we keep going. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't hurt yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> Easiest evangelistic opportunity ever. <laughs> Believe, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Verse 32. And they spoke of the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his household. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. All of a sudden, this foe becomes a friend. As they sing, as they rejoice as they entrust themselves to God. In the same hour of the night, washed their wounds right away. All of his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. He was about to kill himself. 
what a head-spinning turn of events, and now he's, he's happy. But as disciples reject, rest, rejoice, and request God's love, he comes through. That's the big idea. Number three, what does he want from us? To rest, rejoice, and request his love. That's what we find out in Psalm 33. And then amazing things happen. Quick quote from the book of Psalms commentary, Rolf Jacobson. This is a good one. To wait is not just to do nothing or to rest. To hope is not merely to close one's eyes and accept what comes next. They are aggressive verbs in the theological sense that to hope in the Lord's hesed, his faithful love, is actively to place one's identity and future in God's hands. I'll say that again. To actively place one's identity and future in God's hands, like if you're in prison. The Lord is, to wait on the Lord is to look confidently for deliverance and expect that deliverance. That is consistent across the commentaries. Confident, waiting, hoping. God's like, I have a plan and I'm working it. I'm reliable. Relax. I'm going to come through. Because that's what he promised in Scripture. Genesis 3.15. We're almost done. Genesis 3.15 is one of the most amazing promises in the whole Bible. If you know the story, there's a fall. Adam and Eve sin against God. They are deceived by Satan. And now death has entered into our world and destruction And God says this, and it comes through a snake, a personification of evil, not a a manifestation of evil in the form of a snake. And God turns and says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So what happens if you step on a snake's head? Anybody done that? Yes? What happens? I've never done it. I'm literally curious, like, what happens? (laughs) So it depends. What if it's like a big, a good blow? Little head. Crack the skull. skull. Cool. Thank you. That's what I thought too. So this is the promise, but it's been waiting for a long time. The promise is waiting for a long time, and God's people were constantly on the rope, time and time again, cornered by Pharaoh, and Jesus' day, cornered by religious hypocrisy. There's evil spiritual beings, which I don't, you don't have to believe that if you're here today, but just so you know, the Bible teaches that there are spiritual evil beings who are actually animating the evil that we see in our world. All that's happening, seemingly there's no hope, and then all of a sudden one day, God sends the snake crusher, Jesus. When he was on the cross, when things looked most out of control, when it looked like chaos was reigning over his creation, Jesus initiated a new creation. And a new day is dawning for mankind when death and darkness will be no more because the light of the Son of God is, is rising. So now we get to wait, rest, and request his love. Sometimes things still look pretty crazy, though, in the meantime. Not unlike the rumble in the jungle, and we're going to close with this. When Ali was up against the ropes, when things looked lost, it became clear that there was actually a design to this madness. So two things. There's this video clip that I'm going to show you guys. Uh, film, video clip number two in a minute. It's a few minutes long, but I'm going to play it, let it play out. And here's the thing that you need to know. There's going to be a part in this video where you're like, what the heck was that? I'm going to explain it right now. There's two journalists who are explaining. They're narrating. They were actually there during the day of the fight. And one of them is going to talk about the succubus. And what that means is that during the, the run-up to the, the, the fight, the rumble in the jungle, there was actually a visit. I think it was Muhammad Ali and entourage, but I think there was a visit that one of them made to a witch doctor, which again, I'm not advocating that we do this, but there is a reality that sometimes people who are operating in spiritual power that's dark say accurate things. So this witch doctor said, a woman with trembling hands is going to take out Foreman. And if you know anything about the story of Muhammad Ali, what had happened to him later in life? He trembled because he had Parkinson's. So this weak person is going to take out this strong person. That was what the witch doctor said. So that's what the succubus means. So we're all on the same page. And then you're going to see they do an overlay. It's a very creative, artsy, Academy Award-winning documentary. So they do a little overlay of like a woman singing. She's a, a, in like the native Congolese kind of song. That's all that is. So let's roll the tape. Video number two. Enjoy. This is the Rumble in the Jungle. That Ali would dance. And so Ali now went to the ropes and went into the rope dope And a lot of people thought at that moment the fight was over. 
especially on television where they saw it because it looked like Thorne was now killing a very weak Ollie. Now you don't go to the ropes. And there he was, leaning way back. I wrote about it as if, uh, I think the phrase I used was, it was like a man leaning out of windows trying to see if there's something on his roof. And, you know, taking up, but you couldn't really see then. Here were these great broadsides going at him, and it looked as though he, he was being Look set up for the kill. And I, it happened so quickly and so abruptly that I said, I shouted to Norman, the fix is in. You know, that somehow he's supposed to go down on the first or the second. Ropes is halfway house to the floor. It just looked as though he had to cave in. They became so basic at that point that they were like two kids having a fight. And for that round, and for the next round, and for the next round, Ali lay against the ropes in the rope a <laughs> And he kept talking to Thorne. And it was extraordinary. He had to be close to see it, but it was all because it was intimate. And Foreman was throwing these prodigious punches that the sparring partners were throwing. And Ali swung like a man in the rigging. He'd go all the way back, he'd slide out, he'd come in and out of it like that. And occasionally he'd get hit and he'd say, George, you disappointment. You don't hit as hard as I thought you would. George, you're not hitting hard enough. You're not breaking popcorn, George. You're just not hitting. And Foreman's insane and enraged. And wanging at him and wanging at him and wanging at him. Powerful, powerful, powerful. And in the middle of the fifth round, Foreman was worn out. He had punched himself out, taken three rounds. Ali picks it up a little bit, about 40 seconds left in round number five. Suddenly, Muhammad Ali came off the ropes and he hit him a right. And you could see the sweat just pour off, just like a fountain come off Foreman's face. And you suddenly realized there was some design in this madness. You know, I then turned to Norman, I remember, and I, I see he must have been somewhat puzzled, but I said, the succubus has got him. Referring back to this woman with the trembling hands that I've been told by the witch doctors were going to touch Foreman and destroy him. And this is the traditional Congolese music. Look at his trainers, they can't believe it. He was just crying, weeping. Then Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, he was like a sleeping elephant. You can do whatever you want around a sleeping elephant. It's now just totally place here. But when he wakes up, he tramples everything. Muhammad Ali, boom that's what they would chant. It means Ali Killer. George Foreman. He did it. He's champion again. Those are the two dudes. They were there. Foreman, like everyone okay. else, had assumed. So, yeah, Ali won, believe it or not. And um, I think that there's something remarkable in this. There's a, a clip, a Marshall, of Ali after he swung at Foreman and Foreman's fallen down. This is sort of, this is a way of thinking where we are today in the, the history of redemption. The death blow has already been struck. Jesus has already, he's already won. But the enemy is still slowly falling, slowly losing energy, slowly losing strength. So here's the big idea. Though it looks like God's people are on the ropes, our rescue is coming. God's going to deal evil a knockout blow. That's why I showed you that. And then the picture of the two goofy guys. Look at those faces. 
We are the kind of people who get to live in awe of what Jesus did. Those dudes are in awe. That's why. This is not supposed to happen. A mirror for us. Real goofy, but real awe. And then the next slide, Muhammad Ali's trainers. Look at those faces. One of them is just rejoicing disbelief. The other one's just crying. I think just pure relief. We're the kind of people who get to live rejoicing because we get to see our king rise and assume his rightful place. As the whole world watches, Jesus will rise and we will rejoice. So whatever you're going through, remember this picture. Remember this, these faces. Jesus as one. I'm going to call the band up. You guys can stand up if you're able. So here are the three things that we talked about today. God is reliable. He's working a plan. So our job is to rest, rejoice, and request his love. So right now, the band is going to come up. As they get set up, there's one thing that I haven't really talked about, which is just that the whole idea behind the psalm is that it is a victory hymn. So I got a quote from Temper Longman, last thing for, for this message. And the psalmist says, sing a new song. Sing a new song. And a new song is a hymn of victory, sung after God has made all things new by his defeat of the forces of evil. So we have an opportunity now, as God's people, we're kind of in the already but not yet. God's already dealt Satan a death blow. But we haven't fully seen that play out yet. There's still brokenness and pain in this world. But we know what's coming. We know that Jesus will return and assume his rightful place and make all things totally and completely new. So in the interim, just like the people of Israel, in light of their rescue from Egypt, were called to rejoice, were called to rest, and were called to request his love, so we are too. And now we are on our way to the promised land, if you will. Not to be shuttled off into heaven, but actually for heaven to come to earth. For the rule and reign of Jesus to be established here. And we get to sing a new song because God has defeated the forces of evil. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm just going to invite you to sing. I'm going to invite you to sing because of what he's done. He's defeated evil. Father, thank you. Thank you that your son Jesus has defeated evil. Thank you that your son Jesus has dealt evil a knockout blow. Thank you that even though life looks out of control and chaotic, there's design in this madness. Thank you that you are the God who controls the chaos and brings life, that we can rejoice, we can rest, and we can request your love, just like it says in the psalm to do. So I pray that our hearts together, that we'd be unified in crying out to you, lifting our voices to you, making much of you, thanking you, loving you. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, the prayer team will be off on the side if you'd like to get prayer, feel free. If not, I just want to invite you to sing. This is from a book called The Burden is Light by John Tyson. It says, Jewish tradition says that the splitting of the Red Sea was the greatest miracle ever performed. And yet we have one midrash, this ancient teaching that mentions two Israelites, Reuben and Shimon who had different experiences. Yeah, apparently, the bottom of the sea, though safe to walk through, to walk on, was not completely dry, but a little muddy, like a beach at low tide. Reuben stepped into it and curled his lip. What is this muck? Shimon scowled. There's mud all over the place. This is just like the slime pits of Egypt, replied Reuben. What's the difference, complained Shimon. Mud here, mud there, it's all the same. So it went for the two of them, grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And because they never once looked up, they never understood why on the distant shore, everyone else was singing psalms of praise. Songs of praise. I just inserted psalms, but it's a song of praise. For Reuben and Shimon, the miracle never happened. Thank you, Kevin Lachlan, for that. So here's, here's the deal. We have an opportunity. We're all going to be in the mud. But we have an opportunity to look across and to join with the song of praise that's been erupting for centuries and centuries and centuries, generation upon generation upon generation, singing of the goodness of God. You have a choice individually of how you respond.
life could just become like a big reason for complaining. And I don't want to say, I don't say that to minimize your suffering, your pain. Everybody has it. It's real. But you do have an opportunity, invitation to lift your gaze and to look up. Yeah, it's mud, but that's because there's waters that we're walking through. <laughs> and there's death and destruction behind us and life ahead of us. So I just want to encourage you to lift your voices and respond with joy. Now, Father, we thank you. We're grateful to you that you're reliable, that you are working a plan, and that your plan is a plan of rescue for people who need you, and that you do good to all of us. Help us now, Father, to experience your love today. We request it, like the psalm tells us to. May your love rest on us in this room or wherever you're listening to. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. I'm going to close this out. So when the world is chaotic, when things are unpredictable, basically the last three years, and it's really, it's been unpredictable for a long time. We've just experienced it in new ways the last three years. God's working a plan, and we need not be shaken. If you're here and you are shaken, either by what's happening in the world or what you're experiencing in your own life, there's turmoil, I want to encourage you to go get prayer. We got prayer um, available here in the back. If you feel shaken, if resting is really hard for you, if you feel restless in life, unsettled, I want to encourage you to go get prayer. And lastly, for some of us, we might be in a spot where we've actually never really, really experienced. The love of God has never really rested on us. If that's you, I want to encourage you to get prayer. That you might actually need to experience his love for the first time. If you have any questions about that, we would love to help you. There's going to be prayer available in the back. I'll be up here in the front. That's all I got for today, guys. I'm going to do a soft close. We've got five minutes, so if you want to get prayer, there's five minutes. We just ask that at noon you uh, go back and grab your kids if you've got children in kids' ministry. So I hope you enjoy your Sunday. Hope you guys, um, yeah, remember the love of Jesus for you this week. Enjoy. Enjoy.